this particular rainy day. Uh, dear Cambridge Union members and uh, Cambridge University Russian Society members, I would like to introduce to you Mikhail Podakovsky, uh, a Russian opposition politician and a reformer. Uh, Mikhail is well known for being one of the most prominent opponents and critics of Putin and the Putin regime in Russia. His most recent book, How to Slay a Dragon, maps out the future of post-Putin Russia and presents a vision of a potential democratic transition in our country. Uh, joined by the Russian Democratic Society today, we invite you to uh, contribute to the fundraising campaign to provide Ukrainian hospitals with medical equipment in our attempt to deal with the consequences caused uh, by the Russian war of aggression in Ukraine. I would like to give the word to Mikhail now. Good afternoon, thank you for this invitation. Can you hear me there in the back? Yeah. Because I'm actually used to talk without a mic. Я постараюсь сейчас сформулировать некоторые тезисы, некоторые из которых вам покажутся очевидными, другие нет. I'll try to formulate a number of points. Some of them might seem obvious to you, others would not. И оставлю их раскрытие на ваше усмотрение. Хотите зададите вопросы? And to unpack them, it's really up to you. If you wish, you could ask me questions about them. So I'm constantly asked the same question, whether the Russian opposition have a vision of the future, and also whether the Russian opposition has a vision of transition to that future. Короткий ответ есть, и у большей части демократической оппозиции оно в целом совпадает. In short, yes, they do, and for the majority of the democratic opposition, their views coincide. It's a similar kind of vision. Есть один вопрос дискуссионный на теоретическом уровне, я не могу скажу. There is a point of debate. Theoretically, and I'm going to cover it too. И есть несколько типов радикальных взглядов, а некоторых из них я тоже упомяну. And there are also some radically held views that I'm going to mention as well. Российская демократическая оппозиция недавно собралась в Берлине и приняла декларацию, которая согласилась, по крайней мере, There was a recent gathering of the Russian Democratic Opposition in Berlin, and they adopted a declaration in which they their views converged at least on three areas. Война агрессивная, развязавшая ее режим преступный. Украина в границах 1991 года. So this is an aggressive war. The regime that has unleashed this war is a criminal regime, and Ukraine has to go back to the borders of 1991. This wasn't an evident outcome, but if you're interested in details, I'm going to tell you about them. The key actors of the Russian Democratic Opposition also agreed on the following. The future of Russia is a parliamentary republic. The future of Russia lies in strong federalism. And also in strong local government. To sum up, it is the decentralization of the country. But indeed, these were not the most obvious outcomes either. 
but at the moment I'm not going to give you the details of the debates. This transition is going to happen with, with and by violence, or at least with the threat of using violence. There were heated debates about this particular point, but in general it's a common understanding among the opposition. The transition will probably take two to three years, after, only after those two to three years fair elections would be possible. There is also a common understanding that in the forthcoming 20 to 30 years, the level of democracy in different parts of Russia is going to be different. And one of the key issues is going to be the issue of relations with Ukraine. And now the uh, points of debate. So one part of the opposition thinks that the transition should be uh, managed by one uh, revolutionary party with uh, people supporting it and sort of accompanying it. So when we talk about those fellow travels, what do we mean? These are the people who are going to be uh, executing the orders of this revolutionary party. Only then a transition to democracy would be possible. Whereas the other part of the opposition, and I belong to that part, think that the transition should be uh, administered by a coalition straight away. So the system of checks and balances has to be uh, installed straight away in the process of that transition. This might appear a theory, but in fact there are serious consequences of how you look at it today. So again, if you have an interest in hearing more about it, we can talk about it. And now about the radical positions held by some. The radical position is that Russia has to basically stop existing. This is a view held by Ukrainian politicians, some of the Ukrainian politicians, and also some of the politicians of neighboring countries, uh, the, Baltic States, uh, the Baltic States and Poland. So there is a part of radical Russian opposition who support this view. I and the majority of Russian opposition think that this way is too dangerous. But again, we can discuss it, if you want. And my book considers other aspects of that transition. In fact, my book, How to Slay a Dragon, was written exclusively for the Russian audience.
It's too direct for a Western ear. And then it turned out that publishers in the West wanted to publish it, translate it into other languages. So I, we had to cut it down. So if you want to read it in full, you have to read it in Russian. For instance, we consider the issues of underground or immigration. How to put an end to the war? Illustration or improvement, correction. What do we understand by left wing and right wing and the transition to the left vis-à-vis -vis Russia? The choice between an empire or the national state, nation state, sorry. Uh, justice or uh, forgiveness. So these are all issues which are linked with the transition. So again, if you're interested in any of these issues, you can read the book yourselves, or if you want, we can start discussing them here. Thank you. Mikhail, um, we are re really glad to see you here, especially the Cambridge University Russian Society. And I would like to ask a question, um, and I will ask it in Russian as well, but first in English. I've been hearing a lot from Russian political scientists that the natural tendency of the Russian society is being isolationist, and that uh, the future of Russia will be that of a country that wouldn't be open to foreigners. Uh, do you agree with that position? Russia, like any other large country, Russia is largely autarkic. So, for instance, if you consider the United States, let's not take New York or Los Angeles, but the whole of the United States, you can see that it's also some kind of a closed entity. And I'll give you a joke. It's not a joke, it's a case. In, 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 so my colleague and I traveled to Texas. So we were actually passing a policeman in the airport talking Russian. We were talking Russian. And the guy says to us, are you from the UK? And I said to him, why do you think we are British? He said, because you're talking a language I don't understand. Hello everyone, I 
hope the audience, excuse me, I will ask the question in, in Russian to better explain what I actually would like to ask. Михаил Борисович, в 96-м году элиты из добрых побуждений или из коммерческих побуждений не дали, ну, по крайней мере, провести максимально, возможно, честные выборы, потому что посчитали, что для людей и для России будущего будет лучше, чтобы Ельцин оставался у власти. So back in 1996, stays in power and therefore they stop the possibility of holding fair and free elections, democratic elections in Russia. So my question to you is, okay, you say that people should be given the choice to hold fair and free elections. What will happen if these people choose something which is not very palatable, because they're just not ready for democracy, they don't want it? So two points here. I would answer your second point, and I do disagree with the first one. Поскольку я непосредственно принимал участие в событиях 96 года, то я вам могу рассказать, что то восприятие, которое вы, видимо, извлекли из литературных источников, оно не, не, не совсем верно. Well, first of all, because I was actually participating in the events of 1996, I can tell you that your perception, which you must have read about, is not quite the reality that it was. Have you ever heard about the so-called letter of the 13? Frankly speaking, no. Well, Google it. We wrote a letter to Yeltsin and Zyuganov We suggested that they, they should not fragment the country, they should find a common denominator, they should agree on something. Yeltsin должен был остаться президентом. And the outcome would be Yeltsin remains president, Zyuganov is named prime minister. We thought this would uh, recreate the system of checks and balances that was lost back in 1993. Unfortunately, Yeltsin did not deign us with an answer. And then, later on, a group of three people were supporting, so standing by Yeltsin. His personal bodyguard, Korzhakov, the director of, of the FSB, the Russian Secret Services, Borsukov, and the deputy premier Soskariets, prime minister, deputy prime minister, and they suggested that an emergency situation should be declared in Russia, communist, the Communist Party should be banned, and the elections should not be held. And Yeltsin was just a step away from agreeing to that proposal. And then Chubais uh, and us, several people together with Chubais, went to see Yeltsin. <laughs> it wasn't seven people, no. Not seven bankers. 
This is something altogether different. It was Berezovsky's idea, the idea of seven bankers, he wanted to show that he was a very influential person, underpinned by half of Russia's wealth. Let's just not take any, any take any note of that. As you know, uh, during uh, their verdict in the British courts, the, um, basically the judge said that he hasn't, had never seen such a lie in, his, in her life as Berezovsky. So basically, uh, going back to the story we were discussing, Chubais had the same effect on Yeltsin as the python would have on a rabbit. But Yeltsin was not ready to part with power. Yeltsin was saying to Chubais, this is the essence of their discussion, I can only hold on to power if I introduce emergency rule. Whereas Chubais retorted, you can win the elections anyway. So neither were discussing Zyuganov actually taking part. So basically the idea was either Yeltsin introduces emergency rule or he wins the elections with preserving some of the democratic procedures, democratic mechanisms. In fact, we had no chance of offering anything else, and the letter of the 13 that Yeltsin simply ignored is a case in point. And answering your second question is what I tell my friends in the democratic opposition is that during those first elections, fair and free elections, people are going to be elected who you and I are not going to like at all. This is why the checks and balances is a situation of greatest concern to us. We have to create that. This would allow us to take power maybe in the second or third iteration. Unfortunately, I won't be part of that government because Russia is not the United States and when you're 78, there is nothing you can do in power in Russia. <laughs> Thank you for speaking with us today. Um, in 2013, 10 years ago, in the interview with Gary Albert, who is a Russian liberal journalist, you said in the context of Northern Caucasus Republics that uh, uh, disintegration of Russia is, uh, is inadmissible 
and if there is a choice between, say, separation of noble properties to public or war, you would choose war. Obviously, now context is very different, but uh, touching upon what you mentioned briefly in your talk, uh, what are your current views on uh, territorial integrity of Russia, and how do you reconcile this centralization with potential risks of disintegration? I think there is, it's very problematic when you simplify points. Immediately. 
А дальше понятно, что для того, чтобы закрепиться у власти, ему нужно будет продемонстрировать людям, что он наказал тех, кто к этому привел. And then in order to hold on to power, he would have to demonstrate to the population that he or she have punished those who started the whole story. А кто это? А это соседи России. And he or she would say, and who are these people? Oh, they're Russia, Russia's neighbors. So this is a very dangerous idea indeed. misunderstanding here or lack of understanding. The West has so grown used to the using the word oligarchs that people in the West think that really this is the case in Russia. What do we mean by oligarchs? Oligarchs who combine are people who combine political and economic power. So what was the conclusion made? We're going to put some pressure on the oligarchs. They in turn would put some pressure on Putin and this would put an end to the war. They have put pressure on the oligarchs. The war hasn't stopped. Why do you think it hasn't? Because you cannot have a dictatorship and oligarchy at the same time, either one or the other. There are no oligarchs in Russia. All there are are Putin's agents. Это те люди, которые по поручению Путина а, оказывают воздействие, в том числе, на западные элиты для решения тех задач, которые перед ними ставит Путин. These are the people who are Putin's agents, and on his instructions, they are also putting pressure on Western elites in order to uh, fulfill the objectives that Putin has set them. В том числе Абрамович. Абрамович is one of them. А какова их судьба? So, what is their destiny? What is their fate? Those of them who help Putin in his aggressive war are in fact putting themselves among the ranks of war criminals. I think the tribunal in the Hague will decide their fate. Those of them who have found it in themselves to stand away from what is happening. Or have joined the ranks of those who are you know, supporting the just cause in this war. We'll have their chance in court to tell about that. And perhaps the court will not pass a you know, ruling against them. But there is 
inevitably going to be a consideration in court about the uh, life of every person who has not uh, split away from Putin, who has not clearly said what their position is vis-à-vis -vis this war. It's clear that they are going to have to answer uh, in court. Okay, we probably have time for just two more questions. And yeah, we're gonna do that one too. So like that one and then the other one at the front, somebody at the front. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm curious what you think of the new so-called friendship with no limits uh, between Russia and China. And obviously there are limits. I mean, given the troubled history of uh, Sino-Russian relations, I mean, how do you see this evolving over the coming years? Thank you. Because the majority of the Chinese don't like to live in the 
heart of the continent. They like to settle on the coastal parts of uh, China, etc. If you look at the middle of China, you can see that the population density there is not that high. I haven't checked the facts, you can do it for me, but they say that population density in the UK is higher than that in China. But what the Chinese really do want is to have Russia as their sort of petrol station. And Russian, the Russian population understand it well. So even today, this rather pro-Chinese stand of Putin is not particularly popular in Russia. Yet, if you look at the Russian population, it's not a very populated or densely populated country. And the Russian GDP is only 10% of the Chinese or the European Union's GDP. So any sensible Russian government would try and maneuver between the two. Unfortunately, this is our destiny. Я из центра Сибири, поэтому имею право, так сказать, задать Михаил Борисовичу несколько вопросов, что я знаю Михаил Борисовича его деятельность на протяжении множества, множества лет, и я знаю судьбу Венки и Ванкора в частности, и поэтому душа, конечно, у меня с Михаилом Борисовичем. Окей, so I am from the center of Siberia, so I'm going to ask this question to Mikhail Borisovich because I've been following what he's been doing for many, many years. And of course, the fate of the Venke and the Mancus is something which is very close to my heart. Yeah, thank you. И опрожитом, и у него это непрожитая еще ситуация. То есть вот эта вот речь о справедливости, которая у вас идет, безусловно, это понятно откуда. I understand where Mikhail Borisovich is coming from, that a lot of these things are still very close to his heart. He still thinks about the past and what's happened, and, and the, the, the fairness, the issue of justice is very much high on his list of priorities. Ну, просто чисто по-женски, вот, по, так сказать, по, работе, по деловому, можно сказать, разговору, я, у меня возникает вот такой вопрос, да, то есть сейчас Михаил Борисович говорит о том, что предстоит большая работа. Окей, но просто как человек к человеку, я имею вопрос задать Михаил Борисович. Вы говорите, что есть много, что сделано И он говорит о том, что вот необходимо формирование новой парадигмы, так сказать, вот мышления российского населения. And you're also saying that you need to form a new paradigm in the mindset of the Russian population. But you say that the people have to be informed, and we know that this is a zero level, the starting point, before you start actually forming some kind of uh, paradigm of a mindset. So you are saying about many, many years of work before people would actually have the informed idea of how to make their democratic choice. So basically, you cannot just leave it uh, out to chaos. You have to, step by step, build a mature electorate. They have to be mature and well-informed. I know the situation from the outside, and I can say that not all are ready to 
совершать демократический выбор на сегодняшний день. И поэтому я понимаю, что у Михаила Борисовича есть какая-то вероятная модель демократических выборов и формирования государства на демократической основе. Однако, как я понимаю, что существует некое видение работы, видимо, какого-то коллектива. И мне бы хотелось узнать, вот Михаил Борисович как себя представляет в виде какого лидера, потому что вот у него есть очень... Больное, как бы болезненное прошлое, но ведь необходимо формирование оптимистичного, да? оптимистичного взгляда. И совершенно необходимо формирование коллектива с оптимистичным, обычным Looking forward, you have to be optimistic despite all the difficulties and problems of the past, which may make one or pessimistic rather about the future Russia. Я как человек могу сказать, что вот таких лидеров и таких, ну, скажем, зрелых и мощных личностей, как Михаил Борисович, не так много. Я выражаю свое вот как бы почтение, ему выражаю уважение, и просто хочу спросить, он как себя видит, каким лидером? Okay, and basically I say that people like uh, Mikhail Barich-Narkovsky are for few and far between, people with a mature democratic approach. So what kind of leader does he consider himself and, or, uh, and see for, for, for Russia? Bordering 
uh, western part of Russia, that they have to pay 60% of their taxes and give them away to the federal center of Russia. If you don't uh, succeed in persuading them to do that, you will lose power as a leader. We've already had this experiment in our history, Mr. Gorbachev, and you know the results. Because the, the reasons are clear, you have to take money from some of the regions in order to redistribute it and donate it to other regions. And that's the only way to keep all these different regions together in an integrated whole. So I asked the politicians in the United States, what would your decision be? How would you solve this problem? What are you going to do? I spoke to four politicians. So some faster, some slower, but all of them, within 10 minutes, found a solution. The former uh, vice, uh, vice um, uh, head of the American administration, presidential administration, found a solution within one minute. He said, an outside enemy, of course. There is no other solution. You have to create an outside enemy. Because if you want to have centralized government, irrespective of whether it's democratic or authoritarian, you need to create or to have an outside enemy. And that is not China, for sure. Because given the size of the Russo-Chinese border and the size of China, you have to be an idiot to call China your enemy. So what is the solution indeed? To agree to the point, to the fact that neither we nor our children will see a united democratic Russia. We might see a very democratic Moscow and St. Petersburg, maybe Yekaterinburg as well, and a sprinkling of other cities. Well, Krasnoyarsk, Voronezh, Krasnodar will not be so democratic. And the so-called electoral sultanates there, so-called in Russia, uh, will be completely undemocratic. And there are 15 million people living in those sultanates. And we'll still have to find a consensus among all these different electorates. How to do that? To combine a parliament parliamentary republic with federalism. And also put pressure from the grassroots through local government. There is no other option, unfortunately. Uh, 
даже в очень маленьком городе.
donate money directly if you wish to. Uh, that's all for today. Thank you very much. Also, I wanted to add that if you're interested, you can buy a copy of uh, Michael Persevich's book, which you mentioned today. How do you slay the dragon? How do you slay the dragon? Thank you very much. Thank you.